Hi, I'm Erin Tyler, and I'm the creative director of Scribe Media and author of the best-selling memoir, The Bad One. And today we're going to talk about scapegoating and narcissism. We're going to talk about my journey to hell and back, and we're going to talk about how you can live your personal truth and reclaim your soul. Welcome back. We're at part three of our totally binge-worthy, delicious episode of Curiosity Bites with my special guest, Erin Tyler. She is a celebrated uh, designer. She is, uh, she's designed books, book covers rather, for multiple New York Times best-selling authors, James Altrua, Ryan Holiday, David Goggins, uh, Tucker Max, and many others. She is the artistic, uh, current creative director at Scribe Media. Um, her success has an insane backstory that is uh, really a truly heroic journey into loss, commitment, courage, resilience, teaches us to recognize the truth of our own inner voice, find our way back to expressing what is in our soul. And as I said, she's the author of this amazing book called The Bad One. In the last uh, section, we talked a lot about how uh, narcissism uh, comes out of scapegoating. It feeds into a, a sense of uh, Stockholm syndrome, where we're protecting the people who uh, damaged us. Uh, we talked about how that shows up in the world. We've talked about the need for survival and what we do in order to survive, um, living work life from the inside out versus the outside in, who our inner parents were versus our outside parents. And the, the, our parents are often damaged individuals who've never confronted anything and that just gets put on us. And then we talked about being gaslit, about who we are um, and, the, and living in this personal matrix of reality that's got nothing to do with our truth, but everything to do with the truth we've been told we should be in. So I wanna talk now, as we come back into this part, we wanna examine, um, you know, we've talked about your childhood, we've talked about uh, what was going on that was leading to you in this place. Now I wanna talk about the impact of that on you. Um, what was it, you know, all these messages about you were the bad one, uh, what was the, let's talk about the impact that sort of quote descent into hell, which is beautifully uh, illustrated in the book. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that uh, my sensitivity level um, and I think it, it is very common for scapegoats to be sensitive children, because I think mm -hmm. um, without that sensitivity, you're not, uh, having the strength to come forward and say, oh, hey, maybe maybe things aren't so great in this family. You have to be sort of sensitive to, to other people's emotions and their realities in order to um, come up with that. I was an, an extremely sensitive child uh, with a lot of big, big feelings and none of those feelings were okay. Mm -hmm. um, I, all of my feelings were labeled selfish uh, because they did not, yeah, they did not further the storyline uh, that other people were trying to tell. My mother and father were very eager to to show our family as being perfect, as being this great, great family. Mm -hmm. And I was struggling from my very earliest memory, struggling, uh, feeling dark, dark feelings about myself, 
very, very, uh, I would speak to myself in an incredibly negative way. Um, I was, you know, self-sabotaging and uh, a lot of anger, a lot of anger, because uh, when you can't feel your feelings, you're very angry, yeah. very, very angry. Uh, and when you're told that you're just, you know, you're bad, you're so bad, you know, from uh, your birth story, you're bad. You, you know, you came out of your mother in a bad way. Um, you feel very terribly about yourself. Um, and you, you have to hide that. You have to hide that anger um, and those, those bad feelings that you're having. Um, so it, it ended up resulting in some really, really self-destructive behaviors very, very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember standing in the mirror and pinching my fat at like six or seven years old and hating my body by about eight. Um, I was drinking at 11 or 12. I would steal alcohol and drink it just so I could feel numb. So I didn't have to be myself. Um, I was eating disordered very, very early on. I, I, it began with binge eating. Uh, to control my feelings. And then that very, very quickly went into bulimia, which is a scapegoat's dream. I mean, if you want to be an absolute control over your surroundings and never have to, um, you know, feel out of control, bulimia is the thing. Uh, and I was, I think, throwing up, you know, two, three times a day, every day. Um, and yeah, and, you know, I would, I would cycle back and forth between bulimia and anorexia at one point I weighed 97 pounds or something like that oh my goodness I'm, how I'm, tall are you I'm five seven and I weighed about 97 pounds, pounds. five seven mm-hmm. yeah oh hair was falling out and I you know I had no cycle um, I became addicted to exercise I would run you know between five and ten miles a day um, and I, I dated people who would hurt me. I, you know, got into terrible, toxic relationships with people who would speak to me in ways that were unacceptable and they were cruel. And I would develop dependencies on these people and, uh, you know, stay in these relationships where I was being abused on a daily basis. Um, and that just kind of felt normal to me. And I, don't think I felt a feeling from about the age of seven till maybe my (laughs) thirties, unless I was, unless I was too drunk to stop myself from feeling that feeling. I don't think that I felt a feeling. So that, that right there is, is something that I think that people need to understand because we often will look at people who get into abusive relationships and we go, you know, you're a good person. Why are you with this piece of crap who teaches you, treats you so terrible? Mm -hmm. And the simplicity of it is that at some level that for the person going through that, it's normal. At some level, it's acceptable. At some level, it's, what would you say to that? I would say, it's normal. I would say that it reinforces how we feel about ourselves. And I would also say it's that limbic system recreating that trauma again and again and again, trying to get it out. Yeah. So I think uh, once again, it comes back to that trauma. Yeah. I I often said, you know, my analogy of it is this is if you uh, hit your thumb with a hammer 
and you're a kid and you choose to bury that feeling, how hard do you have to hit yourself to remind yourself of it? And they go, what do you mean? Well, if you hit yourself on the thumb with the same level of uh, force when you're 30, mm-hmm. will that trigger it? And they go, yeah. And I go, probably not. You've probably minimized it. So things mm-hmm. have to come back in a bigger way. And I often see people putting themselves into a, a bigger version, a magnified version of the abuse that they suffered in order to see the abuse they've suffered. The challenge with that is then there becomes a measurable compatibility, a com- comparability, which says, well, see, it wasn't as bad as that. And so mm-hmm. now, oh, now you're minimizing it. And it's like trauma is trauma. And you got to get that, that you, it's not comparative. You can't say, well, it was worse for you because you were raped or it was worse for you because you were punched. Mm-hmm. It was damaging and traumatic, period. I think that is such a good point. Uh, you know, this, this brinksmanship that we have with our traumas, you know, we yeah. all have trauma. Get over measuring your trauma against somebody else's trauma. You know, that is not the point. Well, it becomes either minimized through it or maximized out of it. Well, I guess mine doesn't matter because you, this happened to you, minimized, or it becomes maximized and competitive. Mm -hmm. Luxury. Used to dream of it, lad. Used to get up and walk, (laughs) the road clean, walk 27 miles in bare feet in snow. Ooh, I used to dream of living like that. I had to get up in the morning. I I had no feet, let alone shoes. I mean, it's, (laughs) <laughs> nonsense that doesn't yeah. say what was it like for you and it's also it's something that holds traumas in place and keeps them going it furthers traumas when you do that it's literally yeah. you're literally walking in the opposite direction that you need to be walking yeah i, ca- I call it abuse brinksmanship i i can't stand that crap it's, it's so <laughs> stupid feel your stuff do the work be a grown-up yeah but yeah, uh, and I get that, Aaron. I so get that. But you gotta, maybe it's me. Do you know many people who go, oh yeah, you're right. I should strap on the, the backpack and step off into this journey. And mm-hmm. it's a heroic journey in which I'm gonna have to face the demons. And yeah, it's gonna be horrendous, but I'm in. I mean, I meet people all the time who say, yes, I'm in until they start the journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've had people yeah, I mean, a big fat check say, yes, I'm in. And who disappear off the planet. I mean, I, I honestly think the thing that we are most terrified of in this life more than anything, more than death is actually feeling our traumatic feelings that we've repressed since childhood. I think that is more terrifying to people than anything, anything, anything. And I think that is the hardest thing to do. It's the bravest thing to do. And we stigmatize it. We call it, oh yeah, oh, you're, you're feeling your feelings. I mean, we, we literally consider, uh, if you're born male, we literally consider that you shouldn't feel your feelings, which is, that's pathology. That's, we force pathology on yep. male children. Oh, don't cry, be a man. Don't cry, be a man. That is some serious crap. Yeah, I mean that's the that that's the the gender trauma. I talk about that too. The gender trauma yeah. that you're yeah. traumatized by being a, a girl. Well, you're too sensitive, dear. 
or you're traumatized by being a boy. Don't cry. Mm -hmm. You be a man. Be a little be soldier. Be tough. Right? Be tough. Be a little soldier. I'm three. I ain't going yeah. to war. What are you doing, yeah. Dad? You're a nutter. Stop telling me to be a soldier. <laughs> right? I'm a person. You know. I'm three. I just want to hug everybody, <laughs> including my cuddly toys. And you're telling me yeah. to be a soldier. What is wrong with you, Dad? Hold on. Come here, Dad. Bam! <laughs> <laughs> And should you ever go to war someday, when you come home, you damn well better be able to feel or you're in trouble. You're well, in trouble. And th th but this is the challenge. Societally, this is why we've got the vets committing suicide. In a very recent interview we just I just did with Dr. Eugene Lipov, who was doing this magnificent um, medical technology, helping people with PTSD, who are not mm. just from med uh, military, but from rape and all kinds of things. Um, mm -hmm. and talking about this, just like this repression of the feelings is causing all this, these problems. And yes. there's n there is no safe place. I mean, do you see any changes societally? Cause I mean, I see incremental, but a lot of it is push pull. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, I have my theories about this. Um, Go ahead. I, you know, this is your show. <laughs> Jump in. I, I think we're coming off uh, a generation of people who, I mean, you don't want to talk about struggling with narcissism. Uh, I think their parents came home from war. Their parents were raised during the depression. Their parents had severe, severe trauma and they were drunk when they were babies and weren't there for them. And I, and so I think that um, we're coming off that generation and narcissism, when it becomes malignant, begets narcissism, begets narcissism. And we're, you know, we're in a situation now where, uh, you know, we're playing the game of, of, of uh, you know, the telephone game or uh, mm -hmm. photocopies of photocopies of photocopies of individuals, you know, how do we fix that? Well, you have to treat the trauma. You got to treat the trauma, and the and the trauma is, you know, having a parent is, has narcissism. That's the trauma. That's the base base trauma. And, you know, um, I talked about the beginning, right in the introduction, where I talked about the argument about the primacy of DNA is over. Um, we know now that environment or nurture is much more powerful than nature. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because of epigen the study of epigenetics. But the, if we take that a step further, and there is some fabulous research on this, a step further, you've got uh, multi-generational epigenetic trauma. And mm -hmm. so that looks like genetic, you know, your dad was this, so you, and so you are. No, that's epigenetic. Your dad was, they went through this, and he, he his emotions switched on the the um, the cells or, or switched off the DNA in him, and he mm -hmm. behaved in a similar way to you, and that's how it's happened to you. It's not passed down through the genes; it's passed down through the behavior that has triggered the genes inside of people. And so we're carrying epigenetic trauma from multi generational, and mm -hmm. and a lot of the time it's not even ours at the, at the core it's belongs to your grandparents and so the challenge also is that the parents we have is not necessarily the parents we had 
And so when I say to people, you know, you got to look at this and go, well, my mom and dad are great. And I go, okay. And they describe them and they are. And I go, yeah. Is that who your mom was? No. I mean, one of my clients, big, uh, owns a big lumber company, very successful imports, exports all over the world. Great guy. Wonderful guy. Love him to bits. Done an amazing amount of work on himself. But, you know, he says, you know, his mom is, she's sweet. She's kind. She's loving. She's friendly to everybody. Everybody loves her. But who she was is when he was a kid was anything but that. She yeah. was violent. She was cruel. She was mean. She was a drug addict, you know. So the problem is that we don't understand that there's a kid stuck inside of us who had a parent who may not be the parent you, the adult, has. Mm-hmm. And there may have been a change there. And, and if you don't get connected to that part of you that had that parent, you're in trouble because you just keep denying that part of you that has been made wrong or bad or denied. Is that right? Your point? You're still, yeah, you're still stuck in that internal prison. Right. You're still stuck in that internal prison and you're not going to get out of it unless you get angry. I always say get angry, but have empathy. Always, yeah. always empathy, always yeah. empathy for everything that people go through. You know, parents are not perfect people. They're never going to be perfect. They're just human beings. So always have empathy, empathy for them, but get angry, get angry about what happened to you as a child. Anger is self-protection. Anger, anger is saying I mattered. I matter now, I will always matter. Anger is so important. And if you can't get to the, the root of that anger and feel it and get in touch with it, you're not going anywhere. But again, anger is one of those things that is um, looked on as vile in our society. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. when I see angry people in the street, people are like, you know, what is wrong with that person? maybe same as wrong with you <laughs> they just you know they need an outlet um and maybe they can't repress as well as you can so, but i want to come back to this piece w- where we were which was you know self-loathing all this really developed into a massive self-loathing and people will recoil from even the idea of that statement um you went into that self-loathing you know you said by eight you were hating your body by 14 i think you said you were or early um in your teens you were uh eating disordered and depressed and then at uh, i think it was 20 years old i think you said in the book uh you Mm -hmm. drank yourself you nearly drank yourself to death talk us about talk to us about where that led to uh, and what happened yeah um there always at the core of me was this this feeling that I was so bad and so wrong uh, and so vile and um, at the core of me was shame and shame is a very very difficult thing to deal with mm-hmm. um, you know I was built on shame my sense of self just was shame itself yeah. um, and alcohol when I discovered it always made me feel as if I was not myself it, it made me feel numb you know, and what it does with trauma is it is it it straps it in and furthers it. Mm. Um, and so, but it doesn't feel like that. You know, you feel as if it's an escape. You feel yeah. like you're getting away from yourself. And so, you know, I would I would get the taste of alcohol in me and feel just a little bit numb and feel as if I wasn't me anymore and just 
pull the trigger essentially and just drink and get violently, violently drunk. And this was a behavior that went well into my thirties. Actually, I would do this um, and just, just try to escape myself. And then of course, you know, you wake up the next day, you're you um, and you've done nothing essentially, but bind that trauma even further to yourself. And you woke up uh, covered in vomit, uh, surrounded by CDs and didn't you wake up in a cat scan or something or end up in a cat scan? Yeah. Yeah. I, I woke up in a, uh, I got drunk at a, a fraternity party in college and woke up in a cat scan. Thought I'd been abducted by aliens. Like I was still very drunk. Um, trauma had trauma because of that. I had gone face first down a stone stairwell. Um, but I actually very literally com- uh, uh, attempted to commit suicide about a year later uh, by taking a whole bunch of pills and drinking because I just could not feel the, the way that I was feeling even just a moment more. Um, and luckily, I woke up covered in CDs um, and vomit. And, you know, it so didn't... you were 21. You've gone through this all these years. You were 21, you attempt suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, what got you to that point? Uh, you know, why that moment? Why do you think that that was, you know, you know taking all the pills and all this? Why was, why then? Um, a couple of things. I, I had a, a really, really sort of traumatic time at college. I had that incident where I binge drank and woke up in the CAT scan. And then um, I had a really, really bad drug trip on psilocybin, which, you know, I'm a, a firm believer in psychedelic therapy, but it should be done in a therapeutic yeah. setting, uh, not, not with a whole bunch of, of jerks. Yeah, no, not with a couple of bottles of alcohol. Uh, so I had an extremely bad trip. And I think what was happening was I was seeing uh, what was really going on in my soul in a very, very deep, meaningful, honest way. And I was not ready for that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, coming down off of that, I was date raped. I was drugged at a party and yes, date raped. So I, I entered a level of depression that, you know, before or, or since I, I've never experienced. I mean, it was just, it was uh, weeks and weeks of just lying around, just wanting to die. Uh, and eventually I just decided I, I, I couldn't live any longer. Um, and so I took a whole bunch of, of medication that I stole off some drug dealer and um, drank a whole bunch of alcohol and woke up. Did you, did somebody wake you up? Were you found? Did you? No. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a sad story. There was just never anybody ever around to help. There were never kind words. There so you was just never woke anybody. up from your own? I woke up covered in CD cases and, and vomit and said, okay, well, I guess I, I got to clean this up. And so I sort of matter, matter of factly cleaned my apartment and uh, kept feeling depressed for a while. It wasn't, uh, it, it was maybe a couple months later that my uncle killed himself. And so this is your mom's the- brother? This was my father's youngest brother, um, right. second youngest brother. And he's uh, a, he, and, and so I just want to set this, the stage for people because your uncle has committed suicide, but your uncle is no, you don't know that that's the kind of guy he is. You don't know, like you don't expect that from him, right? 
No, he just seems perfect to me, right? So he, he fits perfect. into this this family mode of we're a perfect family. And here's yeah. an example. Here's my uncle. And you said he was intelligent. He was handsome. Mm -hmm. Intelligent, no handsome, great father, just a, a, a great human being all around. Uh, you know, the hockey coach for the kids and, and did charity work and like was just this incredible human being. And he killed himself uh, at the age of 39, I believe which should have been just the prime of his life. Just, uh, you know, I, I still don't really truly know what it, you know, caused him to do that. I, I don't ask. Um, but, you know, I think he'd been struggling with depression for a very, very long time. Um, and went to the funeral and had my very first kind of scary but true and and felt really great thought and that was maybe i'm maybe i'm not the problem maybe i'm not the bad one maybe i'm not the problem of this family and so i started writing your, that you, night you took your brother's uh, your, your, your uncle's suicide for you to say maybe this is a familial thing maybe i'm not yes correct yes. maybe uh, yeah so is that it's i mean it's it's very difficult to see something like that happen um, and not imagine that it could have been you months prior. I mean, you sure. just attempted. Yeah. Um, not imagine that that could have been your body, you mm -hmm. there. And then go, well, why? Why? You know, mm -hmm. um, why? Maybe it's not just me because look, it, it's happened to this incredible man who's a great father, two beautiful sons and has everything to live for. You know, maybe it's not just, I was born bad and, I, and I'm a really crappy person. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe there, there is something, you know, uh, deeper here. See, I gotta tell you, Aaron, that that level of cognition at 21 seems pretty rare to me uh especially after the lifelong in, uh indoctrination that you are the bad one um was it because he was so quote good was it because he seemed so together and that he ended his life was that the, was that the like it it seems like it must have been dramatic i mean it's dramatic to lose somebody of course but that contradiction it tapped into dangerous thoughts i've been having all my life that were not okay to talk about think about express it tapped into the things i had to hide from people and it tapped into uh, my secrets, secrets that I kept from the world. Um, while, you know, on the outside, I was saying, oh yeah, ha, 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 I'm the bad one. On the inside, I was really saying, I am a, a, a ball of rage and I really hate these people and I, I can't stand them. I don't like being around them. Uh, you know, I mean, I had these thoughts. I definitely, definitely had these thoughts. I knew they were wrong. I knew I shouldn't share them. Um, and, but this was maybe the first time that I was like, maybe I should write these things down. 
Maybe I need yeah. to record these things. Maybe these things are relevant. Maybe these things are the way out of these horrific feelings that I'm feeling. And that was and the that, birth of writing for you that day, right? Yeah. So yep. Talk to us a little bit about that. Because you were already an artist, you're already escaping into your art. And now suddenly there's another venue, which is, for some reason, you decided to write. Tell us about that. Yeah, it, it seems strange to me that I came in the form of writing because I was a visual artist my whole life and I was going to art school at the time. You would think that I would go get some paintbrushes and, mm -hmm. and let it come out that way. But there was something about that. Uh, it, had, it had become my potential profession. It had become something that I was going to do to make a living. It had become um, something else. And so I needed something a little more raw and primal um, a different a different way to let these things out and it, I, I it was honestly it was a, a gut-based choice I just mm. had to sit down and write some words out um, and my journey with writing started pretty brutally uh, my early works were pretty <laughs> they were pretty terrible wow. uh, you know yeah I would write these poems they sounded like bad indigo girl songs um, and, but I just felt fantastic when I wrote, wow. I felt so good. And I said things that I had always felt, but never been able to say. And, uh, I said things that felt true and, you know, and I, I can always tell if I need to, to say or write something, if my belly is roiling, if there's a fire in my gut, you mm. know, it doesn't come from here and it doesn't come yeah. from here. It comes from the gut. It's right. the gut. And, and when your gut is like, yes, yes, we need to say that thing. Uh, then, you know, you know, you're on to something good. And, and that's how I always felt when I wrote. And so I just kept going uh, and I did it every day. I mean, some days I would just write all day long. Um, it was my little, my little habit. And, you know, when I sat down to write my book, I, I had to root through like 69,000 different pieces of writing to, to, uh, to finally, you know, piece things together. Um, and there was some really crappy stuff in there. <laughs> um, but you know, the one thing it always was always, always, always honest, always honest. So when you wrote, just so, you know, maybe helping somebody who's listening, when you wrote, um, you initially were just writing for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was that like it by hand in a journal. Yeah. Uh, you know, it would, it would be on scraps of paper. I would write on post-its. I wrote on my own body every now and then, uh, you know, I would write on my knee in a coffee shop. Uh, and then it became, you know, a little bit more organized. I, you know, I would write into Microsoft word into my computer. And I mean, there, you know, there were some, uh, some nights where, you know, I'd, I'd wake up, it'd be like three, four in the morning and I'd have a nightmare and I'd, I'd write down what happened in the nightmare or right. I'd wake up and I had all these feelings and I didn't know where the hell they came from. And it was, when you, when you start to awaken, you have no idea where these feelings come from, what, what the connection is, what the mental connection is. There's no way of connecting. No. They're just like, I, I mean, it's literally like things are just spraying out of you uh, with no kind of logic to them whatsoever. And so, you know, it's so important to kind of like honor them so that you can figure out where they come from to identify, you know, what it is that, that happened that, that, that caused you to feel this feeling. Um, so yeah, it was just a, 
developed a codependency with my computer, had to have it all around me at all times, just so that I could, you know, write things down. And, um, you know, that was the beginning of me really loving myself was, uh, was doing that. Permission to express was the beginning of loving yourself. Which is, I mean, essentially that's where self-love comes from, right? Exactly. Honoring, honoring the feelings, honoring the needs. Yeah. In the next section, I want to talk about um, what happened when you expressed and what that meant to the relationship with the people who brought you up and, and where it goes from there. Um, because one of the great tragedies is that people will say, I could never say that because it would hurt my parents so much. I could never mm. be that. It would hurt my parents so much. Um, and so all this has to be denied and repressed until they're dead. And then I can't uh, be bad to their memory. And so it never gets expressed. So I want to talk about mm. what happened when you started to write and it started to get out in the world, how your family reacted to that. Um, because your parents are still alive and this book is in my hand. So it obviously has made it out into the world. So um, I really want to thank you for your courage, your vulnerability and, and your openness with us. And having us look at this from a very um, subjective, as in your subjective experience of it, but also giving us the opportunity to have a subjective glance at ourselves and where we might be able to see some of the clues for how we cover up and maybe even doing uh, what we started out talking about, which was love by production, which is just producing in order to be loved. So this is a fabulous conversation. I hope you'll come back to us in part three. I'm going to be here again, uh, part four rather. I'm going to be here again with Aaron Tyler, who is the author of The Bad One, a fantastic, beautiful, and deeply vulnerable book. Until next episode or next part of this delicious episode part four stay curious my friends stay curious and come back for another binge worthy episode